GMGM, welcome to the Unstoppable Podcast. This is the best of the month September episode. This month, we talk to experts covering a range of topics. A PhD in macroeconomics, a chief legal officer at a top L2 blockchain, and the world's top domain broker. We talked about NFTs as assets, what makes a security, and how investors should think about NFT domains from an investment standpoint. I particularly enjoyed the legal episode since it clarified a lot of questions that I had about crypto policy and the domain investing episode also dropped some interesting alpha for any investors out there. These episodes are all worth listening to in their entirety, but if you haven't yet, enjoy this best of the month episode for September. And if you hear something that catches your interest, go back and listen to the full episode. So thanks for learning about Web3 with me and the rest of the Unstoppable fam. I hope you enjoy this episode. In this clip, I talked with the chief legal officer at Polygon, and he broke down the implications of the U.S. sanctions on the Tornado Cash smart contract. For the first time, we're seeing open source code getting shut down by the government, and it's setting a dangerous precedent for Web3. His explanation on the potential implications of this was super insightful, and it helped me put this all into context, as I hope it does for you too. I think we're going to see more and more open source smart contracts being used by people around the world. So how we approach policy and regulation on them is very important. So I think we should just jump right on into Tornado Cash because that was a, a recent really big story. And I think that it almost sets a, an interesting precedent that I'd like to talk through with you. So and maybe we should even clarify for anyone who's not fully familiar with the Tornado Cash situation, but... It's a decentralized application that people, it's a crypto mixer. So you can send crypto to Tornado Cash and it mixes it up and it sends it to an address. So it doesn't look like it's coming from you. It's kind of like a way of sending crypto anonymously. I hope that's a good explanation there. But what do you think of this action that the government's taken on Tornado Cash and, and sanctioning its use and saying that we can't use that anymore because it's being used for illicit activity? I think I want to like back up for one second on Tornado Cash and just say, the key thing for Tornado Cash, and you can see this across what the developers have done, like the Tornado Cash developers, in that their real focus was on privacy, right? Their focus was not on being able to help bad actors. I mean, they specifically did things to not help bad actors. They created compliance tools built into it. They even hired what's referred to as a blockchain analytics company that essentially tracks wallets that are connecting and blocks those that are tied to sanctions. So just setting the stage for that, basically what ended up happening is that the Office of Foreign Asset Control, which is OFAC, that administration administers the sanctions regime in the US, which is essentially a regime that is intended to protect like US national interests. It's something that is extremely important in the US. And basically what OFAC decided to do was that it put basically a set of Tornado Cash addresses on the sanctions list. Essentially, there's this list, which refers to as a specially designated nationals list. It's a list that has tons of people's names on them. These are people that U.S. people are not allowed to deal with. They also have a ton of assets on there, including like ETH wallet addresses. And those ETH wallet addresses are actually tied to specific people on there. And they're basically saying, the U.S. government is saying, you're not allowed to interact with this wallet address whatsoever. And so what they ended up doing with Tornado Cash is they put a bunch of wallet addresses on there. For example, they put a Gitcoin grant address on there. But then they also did something that they've never done before, which is they put a smart contract address, being the core smart contract address for Tornado Cash. 
Essentially what that ended up meaning is that no US person is allowed to interact with that smart contract. So if you have funds as a US person in that smart contract, you have no right to actually withdraw the funds from that smart contract. Now the intended purpose of this is to basically say, we want to stop North Korea from being able to launder money through Tornado Cash. But the thing that OFAC did not do at all is think about the collateral impact of that, right? And basically, one of the biggest collateral impacts is the fact that now US people who have funds in there literally have no right to take their funds out of it. The problem with this, other than this collateral impact, is that basically what the US government just did is it took a neutral technology, being Tornado Cash, which is just as neutral as the internet and just as neutral as Ethereum. And it basically said, because this has been used roughly 30% of the time for nefarious activity, we are going to put it on the sanctions list. And that's basically where we stand right now. I didn't realize some of the specifics that you had listed out there. Is this the first time that they've sanctioned a smart contract address versus someone's personal Ethereum wallet address? Or have we even seen that smart contract getting like blacklisted before? Yeah, we've never seen a smart contract listed on there before. And honestly, no lawyer you would have spoken to would have ever thought that they would see a smart contract address listed on the SDN list. It was like a very, very surprising result. So I'd like to kind of break down here, you know, what, what does it mean as a precedent that's being set that this open source code is being criminalized, that the smart contract address is being criminalized in a non-Web3 comparison? I'm almost thinking, is that the equivalent of saying you can't use Venmo because some people Venmo drug dealers or, you know, something like that? I mean, that's what it seems like in my head when I'm thinking about the explanation. I'd say it's even worse than that. I mean, I think your explanation is good in that it is essentially Venmo can be used for good or bad. But the difference with Venmo is that there are actually people behind Venmo who can actually decide whether they want to stop a transaction or not stop a transaction, whether they want Venmo to be used for good or whether they want Venmo to be used for bad. This is even worse with Tornado Cash because there is nobody to make those decisions. The core Tornado Cash smart contracts admin keys were burnt. There is nothing that anybody can do about those contracts whatsoever. So people are going to continue to launder money through Tornado Cash if they want to launder money through Tornado Cash, even if they're on the contracts on the SDN list. The burning of those private keys is important to note because I saw, and maybe it was by you, maybe it was by other people commenting on the situation, people can recreate, like this, this is open source code. So someone can spin up another smart contract that does the, essentially the exact same things as Tornado Cash, but Tornado Cash has been vetted, it's been used, it's something that the Web3 community knows that you can use Tornado Cash without potentially having your funds like stolen from you. And so if someone spins up a copy of Tornado Cash that hasn't proved that they've burned the private keys, you know, you could be now exposing yourself to something super risky. So it seems like A, it's getting rid of a, a tech that's been used and like trusted by the community. and. And then it just brings up this concept of like, what happens when you're sanctioning a technology as opposed to an individual or an entity? And I got this like Brian Armstrong quote, CEO of Coinbase. He said, sanctioning a technology as opposed to an individual or entity seems like a bad precedent to me and it should be challenged. Could have many downstream unintended consequences. So 
what could the downstream consequences of this be if, you know, this kind of legal practice was looked to be used again when it comes to like crypto tech? Yeah. I mean, I think there's a few things. There's some things that are like actually direct impacts, right? So if we actually just look at what I mentioned earlier, which is like US people using Tornado Cash, they can't. Okay, well, that's the first one. That's the closest impact. Then you get one step removed from that and you say, what other impacts are there? Okay, well, what we also saw a lot on Twitter was complaints about people getting blocked from using interfaces. And basically the reason that happened is because a lot of DeFi interfaces even though the protocols are completely open source and permissionless, the interfaces are hosted in a centralized manner. And so those interfaces, the developers behind them, will essentially use blockchain analytics companies to determine whether they are, in their determination, able to transact with a certain address. Well, what ended up happening is because a smart contract that has sent funds to, I've seen up to like 50% of all Ethereum addresses have somehow touched OFAC, like indirectly through wallet hops, that basically you had a ton of people getting blocked from transacting on different DeFi platforms as a result of that. That's like a second impact. I think the most important one that Brian was referring to is the precedent that this sets from like a technological perspective, which is I said earlier, like no lawyer would have thought that you would have a smart contract address put on the SDN list. And the reason for that is because you're basically like limiting free speech in that instance, right? So code is speech. We know that. There are limitations on that for what it's worth. Like people talk about the code is speech thing as if it's like a, a ultimate truth. It's not. Um, there is code that if it is written in certain ways, for example, if you write code that is intended to cause AI to go kill people, that code is not going to be protected speech, <laughs> like very clearly. But most code is protected speech, especially code that is neutral in its activity in the way that Tornado Cash was. And so the problem with this now is that if you're a developer, you're sitting there saying, what is it that I can develop and just write code for and actually get in legal trouble for? Whereas before you would have asked yourself, okay, if I write this code, I'm probably going to be fine. What I need to be careful about is what activity I do around that. Am I hosting certain things? Am I marketing it in an incorrect way? And so setting a precedent where essentially you are going to go ahead and prevent American people from using open source code is a very bad precedent. And honestly, if we do nothing about it, it essentially like opens the door for other regulatory agencies to essentially try to go after code itself rather than actually the activity of people around that code. Now, I really, really like that explanation and, and talking through how code is viewed from a speech perspective. And you even, when we started talking about Tornado Cash in the beginning, had talked about how when it comes to intent, they've done a lot of things to, it seems like, show that Tornado Cash isn't built to be intended to use for those nefarious reasons. I've got like a, a Twitter thread pulled up listing some reasons why Tornado Cash might be used for the average person. Maybe you want to, you've been doxxed and you're being harassed online, so you wanna send funds anonymously. You wanna anonymously gift to a cause. You're being paid in crypto and don't want your employer knowing your financial details. So, you know, hiding personal wallet addresses and stuff like that. So it seems like there's a lot of real use cases for Tornado Cash. And I guess we'll be we'll be following this, right? This it seems like there's definitely gonna be downstream action probably being taken to maybe reverse this or 
just make sure this doesn't happen again? Yeah, I mean, I think there's been a lot of infighting in the community over this. And what I really hope, and I know there's some who are focused on doing this, there's going to be like the community coming together to really actually fight this against those who who we need to fight. And there's certain organizations, uh, Coin Center, DeFi Education Fund, Blockchain Association, that are like policy and advocacy orgs. They're already coming together to make plans on like what they can do. And I just hope, honestly, the rest of the community can do it. Because like what we've seen from a like regulatory perspective is that when the community comes together and acts as one, we're like extremely powerful in the space. The most evident has been like around the infrastructure bill uh, a couple of years ago, a year ago now, where you basically had, you know, tens of thousands of letters from the crypto community written to policymakers around this bill and phone calls being made. Point is that we have like amazing community and that we just need to like act together as one against those who are actually taking bad actions. In this clip, I talk with Andrew Rosener about the power of NFT domains and how brands should think about NFT domains from a brand protection standpoint. He even shares domain investing advice, which gets broken down in this upcoming audio segment. Andrew has sold x.com to Elon Musk, prime.com to Amazon, zoom.com to Zoom, and he even sold nft.com for a cool 2.5 million. So let's just say he knows what he's talking about when it comes to domain investing. In this clip, Andrew talks investing timelines, number domains like 123.x or 123.nft, and we even give a shout out to the UD10K club. Hope you enjoyed this clip. What advice do you have for domains to invest in? Do you have thoughts on triple digits? When it comes to numbers as having value, we've seen a run on those in ENS. We, we've started to see some of that happen on Unstoppable, but not necessarily from a price perspective, but just from some of the digits being bought up. I believe all dot NFT triple digits are, are gone now. First and foremost, as I just mentioned, extend your timeline, right? When I buy a domain name, even a .com, even a super premium .com domain name, my investment time horizon is 10 years. And in some cases, longer. But my expectation is 10 years. So I buy that domain and I expect, even in a, let's say, relatively mature market, such as .com, I expect and anticipate a 10-year hold time. And keep in mind, that is with hundreds of billions of dollars every single year flowing into from the venture capital market into startups and all these startups are utilizing these domain names to launch every new product every new service all of it requires a domain name from the legacy internet and even in that environment i have a tenure time horizon so first and foremost when you're making investment decisions you need a long time horizon 10 plus years i just said that you know i think it's 15 to 20 years is the mainstream adoption cycle and we're probably five years into that so it makes absolute perfect sense that you should be looking at a 10, 15, 20 year time horizon with these investments. You're, you don't need to buy it and flip it tomorrow. In terms of numeric domains, you know, we've seen this movie before in, in, in dot com, right? We, we, we saw the run up in 2014, 15, 16 of numeric dot com domain names. First, it was the two numbers went to a million dollars, then the three numbers, you know, went to several hundred thousand dollars. And then it was four numbers, they went to tens of thousands of dollars, and then it was five numbers, went to single figure, thousands of dollars, and even six numbers became worth, you know, as long as it didn't have a seven or a zero or a four, you know, they were worth hundreds of dollars. 
in 2016, 17, that whole thing blew up and they all lost 60% plus of the value that it had run up to. Now, two-number.com is still incredibly scarce and it's still super valuable. A three-number.com is still super scarce and it's still incredibly valuable. And a four-number.com is relatively scarce. Right? You know, there's only a thousand of them or I guess 10,000 of them. You know, valuable, but at a fraction of what it was, okay? It's interesting with these Web3 domains. In the legacy route, that phenomena happened on .com. And almost nothing, to a very limited extent, .net, .org, but almost nothing. And so we see that happening on, on the ENS domains. And I don't see any reason why you can't extrapolate that to other domain extensions. But obviously, the more domain extensions there are, the more dilutive the price appreciation is going to be. When you think about what we talked about earlier, what the future utility of these things is, you want to have something memorable. If I'm going to tell you, hey, Josh, you know, send me 50 bucks for dinner last night, uh, send it over to, e even if I said send it to andrewroser.x or .wallet, like you might not know how to spell my last name. You might mistype it. It's a little bit longer. It's better than sending you the wallet address, but it's, it's, it's not perfect. Sending it to drew.wallet is better. And in the same way, in a multicultural, multi-language world, sending it to 456.wallet is really easy. Nobody is going to forget that, right? Nobody's going to forget 888.wallet or 888.x or 888.eth, right? These are highly memorable naming conventions that have been proven out in various aspects, in language and in domain names and in social media handles and, 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 and all, the, all the various places we use naming conventions. And so, yeah, I think that they're great. Now, what is the value? I don't know. My guess is that the values that we're seeing some of these .eth domains trade at is likely highly speculative and probably a bubble, but I could be wrong. You know, like I said, there's only 10,000 for number in any one domain extension. And so that's pretty limited. And those are really easy to remember. And some are better than others. So, so I certainly believe that the value will be pervasive, but I don't know that, you know, them trading for all of them being worth, you know, a floor of tens of thousands of dollars, if that makes sense, yet to be seen. I feel like what I hear is some numbers even hold more value over others. You know, at least with Unstoppable, we have a lot of different extensions versus, you know, .eth, you just got one. Including .888. Yeah, including .888. And I'm curious, is there one extension over the others that you have a preference for or target over others? I'm actually responsible for the vast majority of these unstoppable domain domain extensions. It was my list that, that I came up with as an advisor on Unstoppable. So, you know, I kind of love all of them because I came up with most of them. But I think my single favorite is .x, right? And for a variety of reasons. One is I believe X is the most important letter. X is everything and nothing at the same time. It's the ultimate variable. If you're going to have a single letter domain extension, X in my mind is like, the one you can get away with most because it doesn't need to mean anything. It's just X and X is cool. And again, back to these naming conventions, we've been throwing X completely arbitrarily 
on the back of commonly used words in order to create a brand for a very long time, right? Basically since the inception of the internet, right? I think that X is my favorite. And I think that another reason for that is also the fact that there will never be, or it never is a dangerous word, in the foreseeable future, there will not be a .x in the legacy room. And so that in and of itself means that there are not going to be any collisions with the legacy root. And that avoids quite a large problem. It just makes it, obviously, you know, I've always believed shorter is better. For the most part, there are exceptions, but for the most part, shorter is better. And so having a one character domain extension means that you can potentially have a two character domain, right? One on the left, one on the right. Or I guess three, if you count the dot. Yeah, I, I just like X. I think X, like I said, X is everything and it's nothing. It's the ultimate variable. It's just cool. X is cool. For the last section of the Best of the Month episode, I'm interviewing PhD macro economist Tasha, and she breaks down what an asset is and what the properties of an asset are, such as being durable, transferable. Does it have a claim to future economic value? She then compares assets to NFTs and shares why NFTs could be the next big asset class. Something I took away from this segment was that over time, we've seen asset classes get created and destroyed and even experimented with. NFTs certainly could be up next. Let's talk about NFTs from like the high level perspective for a second here. You had a good thread back in 2021, like end of 2021. In it, you said NFTs will grow because it democratizes asset creation. I thought that was an interesting take and kind of want to ask you some questions around that. So maybe my first one is, from your perspective, like what are assets and how are NFTs playing a part in asset creation? From a high level, what is the asset? It's a tool that allow you to transfer the claim of ownership on economic output across space, across time. Every year, the economy produces GDP. Who owns that GDP? If you have cash, you can buy stuff, so you own a piece of that GDP, in that sense. It can be exchanged for a claim. It's a claim on the economic output. That's why cash is an asset. Same thing with, for example, real estate or the so-called store of value. What is being stored there? It's a claim on future economic output because you can exchange that for things that you need to buy, you need to use that's being produced by in the economy. So that's on the high level, any asset to fulfill this function of an asset, it needs to meet some criteria. It needs to be in limited supply. It needs to be durable, transferable, it needs to have a social consensus that says, okay, we all recognize this thing as a asset that can store some value, meaning some claim to future economic output in it. So if you look at NFT, what is an NFT? It's just a hash token on chain, on the blockchain, right? So then you look at, does it fulfill the criteria that we just mentioned? Can it be in limited supply? It doesn't have to be, but it can you can programmably limit the supply of a type of NFT. Is it durable? Is it transferable? Yes. 
it's pretty hard to destroy because it's built on a decentralized databases. And then it can be there forever as long as this database exists. And it's very easy to transfer. Much easier to transfer compared to any type of physical assets, actually, which gives this asset more liquidity. And theoretically, there is a price premium from liquidity. And the last thing is, is there a social consensus? Gold, for example, there is a social consensus around it. People recognize, okay, we all agree this thing has value. We can use this as a store of value. It basically, gold is like a database in, in solid form. This consensus regarding NFT, it's being bootstrapped. So that's why you see people put so much emphasis on community, on the so-called Lindy effect, or the kind of uh, social consciousness building effort surrounding NFTs, because everybody is trying to achieve that social consensus for their particular type of NFT. That all makes sense here. And I feel like what you just outlined was showing how NFTs can be an asset. And I feel like that begs the question a little bit, like, should it be an asset that we build that consensus around? And within that thread that you had put out, you laid an argument that there is a global asset shortage and that you know, NFTs can fill in for some of this demand and generate that store of value. And I was kind of curious, like, why do you think there is this asset shortage and why do NFTs then, given the fact that they do have the characteristics of what an asset can be, like why do they fill in here? A main factor, I would say, that is driving the global asset shortage is the growth of emerging markets over the past 20 years. So you have this part of the world, a lot of it in Asia, for example, that has created a lot of new, like the GDP growth have been very high over the past 20 years. So a lot of the new wealth gets created, but those wealth, like, again, we talk about the function of the asset is transfer that claim on future economic output across time. So when you create like this GDP, or you cannot all consume today, right? You get it stored for the future. So that needs asset to be stored. So traditionally, you have real estate, equities. Those are the traditional types of like the asset that can carry that kind of time transfer function for your future claims on economic value. It's why the real estate market and equity market in Korea and China are so crazy. <laughs> the speculation and the bubble is on a different level compared to the speculation in the mature market like in the United States. Because there is this imbalance between the demand for asset and the supply for asset, because the equity market is relatively immature and relatively shadow in those countries. Most of the time, you know, that's why everybody is like storing their values in real estate. So I think what I'm hearing a little bit is like, what's going on right now is a, someone in PhD econ is talking to someone who's trying to understand it in very simple terms. What I think I'm taking away is there's a lot of parts of the world that are gaining economic maturity and have rising GDPs. And they need places to put their money, to invest their money. And in a lot of those countries, like real estate prices are high and equity options are low because their markets may not be as mature as like the US market. And so there's an opportunity here for these NFTs to be a form of asset creation because 
They're so transferable around the entire world that just opens up the market for them to find ways to put their money in, right? Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying the emerging markets are going to buy all the NFTs. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, if you look at a global level, there is a supply demand imbalance regarding assets in general. So that creates the opportunity for new asset classes to emerge. Uh, NFT could be one of them. The other factor is after the GFC, after the global financial crisis, you actually destroy some asset classes, such as subprime mortgage securities, <laughs> because those turn out to not fulfill the function of asset very well. Actually, you, you destroy some asset supply after the global financial crisis. The quote I want to share just from that thread is, you said, NFT is democratizing asset creation and producing a new generation of store of value that helped to meet the demand for assets in a new global financial paradigm. So you kind of mentioned after the last financial crisis, some asset classes get destroyed. And right now we're going through a, a period of time where some new ones are being created and being experimented with. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Unstoppable Podcast. If something we said today resonated with you, please leave us a review, subscribe, and share this with your friends. And remember, this conversation doesn't have to end here. Tweet us your questions, thoughts, and ideas to Unstoppable Web. I look forward to hearing from you, and thank you so much for listening.